Thanks for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. This past Sunday at Storyline's Gathering, we brought to a close our series, Grace Changes Everything. We considered the very last and most important aspect of life that grace changes. Without this change, none of the others amount to anything. The band performed songs by the band Perry, News Radicals, Patrick Droney, and more. Let's have a listen.
was my aunt several years ago, and eventually someone else was assigned her phone number, and we know that because my aunt was part of our family text chain. And at one point, a random guy chimed in kind of annoyed, why am I part of this text chain? <laughs> so I responded the only way I could. I said, because you're my aunt and we love you. <laughs> and he was like, bro, I'm not your aunt. And I was like, you haven't changed a bit. <laughs> what a character, right? Catholic funerals, you're supposed to kneel next to the casket and say a prayer. That prayer goes like this. One Mississippi. <laughs> two Mississippi. It's got to be long enough. Funerals are weird. Open casket, closed casket. I want to be sitting up in my casket. You know, just sitting there. Eyes open. I'd like to be positioned near the doorway so when people enter the room, they're like, what the hell? I'd rig it so occasionally my hand would go up. I definitely want there to be crumbs on my chest. Did he eat recently? I'd pre-record an announcement. Thanks for coming to my funeral. Don't be sad. I'm in a better place. Just kidding. I'm right here. Good morning, Storyline. It's so good to be together. Um, this morning, we are closing what has been one of our longer series that we've ever done in the history of Storyline, a series that we've called Grace Changes Everything. And if you haven't picked up on the hints this morning, we're going to be looking at something hard, a very difficult topic this morning. And for too many of us, too relevant. And the question uh, that we're going to be asking is, how does grace change death. And before we get into this today, because I know this is so difficult for so many of us, I do, I just want to say a prayer for us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this chance to come together and to consider uh, what a gift life is and why it is that death is such a difficult and hard topic and a hard reality for us. I pray that you'd open our minds and our hearts to what it is that you have for us in the face of that. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So, death is our topic. Aren't you so glad this is the day you chose to come, right? Like, yes, perfect. So, um, we are incredibly fortunate in our society, and I think we know that. You turn on the TV at all in the last few weeks, and it just becomes obvious that we live in a time and a place with such peace such stability and safety that we can and frankly do, for the most part, just move death off to the side. No one likes to think about it. No one likes to talk about it. We've all gone through long periods of time in our life where really it's not an issue at all. And that has not been the case for most human beings in most of human history. Death has been a constant for most most human beings in, in most of human history. An obvious, open, inescapable reality of everyday life in most times and places, including in most places today. So we are having a very unique experience in human history that we even have the luxury of trying to set a death off to the side of life. But even we, in the miraculous time and place that we live in, we can only ignore it for so long. Because I'm not telling you anything that you don't know, death is a big part of our future. It's a big part of our future, of every, every single one of us, including our own death. Um, the, the very clear teaching of the Bible is that it is the fear of death that robs us of the joy, depth, and abundance that we were made for and that we long for. In fact, the Bible teaches that whether we know it or not, and most of the time we don't, most of the counterproductive distractions that we take on in life, even the self-destructive ways that we fall into in life, grow out of the fear of death in one form or another. Abuse, depression, isolation, greed, anger, dependence, the list goes on and on and on. These are all just symptoms of this existential fear. One author put it like this, 
all anxiety, all dissatisfaction, all the reasons for hoping that our experience could be different are rooted in our fear of death. Fear of death is always in the background. As the Zen master Roshi said, life is like getting into a boat that's just about to sail out to sea and sink. Thank you. You Leo Tolstoy, in his classic book, War and Peace, said something very similar, and yet he holds out a little bit of hope for us. Listen to what he says. Man cannot possess anything as long as he fears death, but to him who does not fear it, everything belongs. I suspect that we underestimate how profoundly our life experience is impacted how our character is shaped by what we believe to be our ultimate future. Even though it's not something we talk about or think about very often, it's kind of like the background to our life. It's the operating system of our software, if you will. Which is why one of the most critical promises that Jesus is offering everyone, everywhere, every day is freedom from the fear of death. The, the Bible actually says or that the gospel of grace can deliver all of those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So how? That's the obvious question. How does grace change even death? There's so many passages in the Bible about this, but I picked one out this morning that is kind of a classic. We actually referenced it earlier in this series a few weeks ago. This is what the Bible says. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. I know that this seems like a really dark topic, but I want you to hang in there this morning with me because I think this is one of the most hopeful and uplifting messages that I've ever had the opportunity and the pleasure, the privilege, the joy to share. Because this passage and so many others in the Bible point out that the gospel of grace, when we trust in it, when we trust in it, it really does give us something that can, over time, overcome the fear of death. And so our first question is, what is it that grace gives us and how do we get it? So look at what Paul says here. I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. Now that's really bad grammar. It's just translators translating the Bible literally and into English. It doesn't really say what we want it to say. It's a double negative. And what Paul is saying, what the Apostle Paul who wrote this is saying is, grieve, but do so hopefully. He's suggesting that the way of grace gives us an extreme balance, if you will, in the face of death, a hopeful grief. Now, the Bible does not encourage some flat or like stoic approach to death. Even Jesus, at the tomb of one of his friends, Lazarus, weeps. Now, that sounds so subdued, right? Like the, the, the I'm going to age myself. You remember that... Uh, commercial with the Native American about pollution. I mean, many, many years ago and that like, like slow tear going down his face. That's what we picture Jesus. That's not what this translation is. This translation actually says, when it says Jesus wept, the shortest verse in the Bible, actually the word for weep here means to sob, to shake with sadness and rage. Jesus is grief stricken. He didn't say to Lazarus and his family like, there, there, it's not that big a deal. Jesus is grieving. Jesus is angry at death because death is an intruder. This is not the way things are supposed to be. We were not meant to die. We were built to last, to live forever. The Bible says that God has set eternity in our hearts and we know it. Death is this cosmic contradiction, this existential crisis because we know when someone we love dies, we know there is something very 
very wrong. Because of my role here, I have the beautiful honor of speaking at quite a few funerals. And so I could see a lot of reactions to death and how people and families respond. And grief can take on many forms, and there's no right or wrong way to do it. And indeed, it does leave a mess sometimes. And there are some reactions, though, that I think... Um, sometimes concern me, and a lot of times they come from um, people who seem to be like the most religious. And I, I think sometimes folks like that think that to be sad at all is like a lack of faith. Like, we're supposed to just be okay with it because they're in a better place, right? But in the Bible, death is a monstrosity. It is. And it should not be downplayed. It is an abnormality. It is our enemy. God hates it. And Jesus is enraged 
by it. In the Old Testament, there's a story of a man named Job who loses everything in life, including his entire family. And it says that he tore his clothes and he covered himself in ashes. And yet, in all these things, Job sinned not. Too many times we try to skip over grief or fake or pretend that somehow like by believing in God or being religious makes it less devastating or less of a loss. And it's not helpful because it's not real. It's not true. And it's not the way that Jesus approached death at all. Grieving death is normal. It is natural because death is not normal. And it is not natural. Grief is our soul at war with a warped reality. Lately, when I'm with families who've lost somebody, I've begun to describe grief like this. Grief is love with no place to go. If we were made in love, by love, out of love, with love, to love, when death cuts off a loving relationship, when that love we have for someone suddenly has no place to go, if we don't grieve and if that isn't messy, something's wrong. Something's wrong. It is not a sign of religious maturity to just brush death aside like it's no big deal. Jesus doesn't do that and the Bible doesn't encourage us to do that. On the other hand, the non-religious world doesn't seem to handle it any better than the hyper-religious world. Like, for the non-religious world, death is just, it is natural. It is supposed to happen. It's just a natural part of life. And when, you know, when you die, that's just, you lose consciousness. And that's it. That's the end. And I think that's just another flavor of, like, disconnected, robotic, inhuman response to how we know what we're really experiencing. Like, this is just a natural part of life. You know, say your goodbyes and move on. But that's not real. That doesn't ring true to us. We've even made movies about this, trying to kind of celebrate this idea, like death is part of the circle of life, right? It's a great movie, but I'm not sure that it really is much comfort to us. Like when we die, we become fertilizer for plants, and then animals come along and eat those plants, and then someone eats that animal, and just on and on it goes. That's like cold comfort. To know that my molecules will that make up my physical body will continue to go on after I die doesn't really do anything for me, right? That doesn't save us from what we love about life because what we love about life is love. What we love about life is love and the fact that you know, matter can neither be created nor destroyed is not a way to approach the reality of death. It's not a way to face death that actually alleviates any fear of it at all. And Jesus will have none of that. He doesn't approach it like that. He quakes with rage and sadness at death. But on the other hand, there is an extreme balance This is what grace gives us, grief with hope. And now the question becomes, how do we get this grief with hope that defeats the fear of death? Some of us will remember when we were little kids playing outside, and this is back when little kids were allowed to play outside, okay? And I mean, every day you would skin an elbow or scrape a knee and you did not want to go inside and show your mom because you never know what's going to happen. And, we, and do you remember what we did? Do you remember how we handled that? It was like this. I always wanted to be a dad. It just took 46 years for it to happen. Just rub some dirt on him. You might want to put a little Neosporin on her. I think you'd get infected. Oh, yeah? Are you a doctor? Are you just like one of those WebMD guys? This is common knowledge. You want to keep the cut clean. Well, listen, I'm trying to raise a little man here. So why don't you just go on Twitter and go share this story where you're the hero? I, I had to take the funniest in, uh, part out of there. But he's trying to raise a little man there, not somebody else, okay? And uh, how? Rub some dirt on it. We all remember that. If you're older than 40, you remember rubbing some dirt on it, right? Now, medically, probably not the best idea. And this is, but this is the extreme balance of grace that changes even death. Because we grieve with hope. We take our wound, 
the real sadness of loss and we rub grace into it. We don't ignore the wound. We don't pretend it's not real. We don't pretend it's not this huge gaping hole in our life. But we grieve with hope. How do we do that? We rub grace into it. So how do we do that? How do we rub grace into our grief? I think this is what the Bible means when it teaches us that we can and we should be sad, even angry about death, if that's an appropriate response for you. But we don't have to be fearful. The Bible talks about death in really remarkable ways. In one place, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the passage we're looking at, in another place, he says this, death, where is your victory? Like, where is your sting? He's actually taunting death. George Herbert, who wrote many hymns um, back in the day for the church, in one place he says this, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel of grace has made him just a gardener. When Dwight Moody, the famous preacher, was on his deathbed, one of the last things he told his loved ones was, pretty soon you're going to hear that Dwight Moody is dead. Don't you believe it? I'll be better than I've ever been before. C.S. Lewis put it like this, if we let him, God will make the filthiest and feeblest among us into the most dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures, pulsating with such energy, joy, wisdom, and love we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back perfectly to God, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. That is what we are in for, nothing less. They are rubbing grace into their grief. Many of us will recognize the late night host, Stephen Colbert. I have never seen the show. It's way too late at night for me. But I do think he's super funny when I've seen him. He's also very brilliant. He's also a massive Lord of the Rings fan. And so that's really cool. But what you may not know about Stephen Colbert is that when he was 10 years old, his father and two brothers were killed in a plane crash. And just 10 years old. Not long ago, Anderson Cooper of CNN, who lost his father when he was 10, lost a brother to suicide and had just lost his mother, actually interviewed Stephen Colbert about the role his faith has played in him moving forward in life. And I think that you'll see a difference in the approach that they have towards death. My dad died when I was 10 too, and I think, I mean, it's such a horrible age to lose a father. I can't imagine losing both my brothers at the same time as well. For me, losing my dad then, it changed the trajectory of my life. I'm a different person than I feel like I was meant to be. I had a a friend who lost someone recently, lost a child, and she said, how did your mother do this? And I said, I wish she was here to tell you. Hmm. But it had to do with... um, had to do with uh, love, and it had to do with her for loving God. And I have the crucifix on my wall that was hers, when I, and I inherited it when she died. And she would pray to Our Lady and say, she knows what it is to lose a child. Hmm. And her example of her faith stays with me. And, and in my tradition, that's the great gift of the sacrifice of Christ, is that God does it too. Mm. that you're really not alone. God does it too. I actually, this is going to sound weird, but um, for a long time, and and probably still to this day, wish that I had a scar running down my eye, my face, that's unavoidable for people to see because it would sort of, it would just be a silent signal to everybody I meet that I'm not the person I was meant to be or I'm not the person that I started out being. But you're entirely the person you were meant to be. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe this is a warped version of it. You told an interviewer uh, that you have learned to, in your words, love the thing that I most wish had not happened. Um, I remember you went on. To, you went on to say, uh, what, what punishments of God are not gifts? Do you really believe that? Yes. It, it doesn't mean you. I don't, want, I don't want it to have happened. I want it to not have happened. Right. But. And so, what do you get from loss? 
you get awareness of other people's loss. Well, that's true. Empathy. Which allows you to connect with that other person. Right. Which allows you to love more deeply and to understand what it's like to be a human being. Right. And so, at a young age, I suffered something so that by the time I was in serious relationships in my life with friends or with my wife or with my children is that I have some understanding that everybody is suffering and however imperfectly acknowledge their suffering and to connect with them and to love them in a deep way that not only accepts that all of us suffer but also then makes you grateful for the fact that you have suffered so that you can know that about other people and that's that's what I mean it's it's about the fullness of your humanity. I want to be the most human I can be. And that involves acknowledging and ultimately being grateful for the things that I wish didn't happen because they gave me a gift. That interview is about 20 minutes long. You can find it on YouTube and I would highly recommend it. It's just... So moving. Colbert is actually quoting J.R.R. Tolkien there, the author of The Lord of the Rings, when he said, what punishments of God are not gifts? Now, it's an unfortunate word choice. Tolkien was not using the word punishment the way that we think of it. Like, it seems to be saying that like, because of something bad we did, God visits disaster on us on purpose. And that is not at all what Tolkien meant. It's not what Colbert means when he um, cites that quote. Tolkien and Colbert are both saying that God is so good and so gracious, even when disaster strikes, even the worst of all circumstances come our way. They, it cannot separate us from the love of God. And even more so, God will not waste our suffering. I met with a friend this week whose spouse is quite sick and it is, it's a very difficult situation for everyone. And I was able to share with this person that my family has suffered through something similar, although all suffering is unique. And as much as I wished it had not happened, with everything that I have, that my daughter Emily would not have died at five and a half. As much as when my son got married three weeks ago, I could not get her out of my mind about how much I wished she was there. Her death, has given, has given me, has given our entire family something, a gift to connect with people who are also suffering. And this is one of the ways I think that we begin to rub grace into grief, is to recognize that God will not waste our suffering. He will bring beauty from ashes and that does remind us in those moments when I was talking to this person a couple days ago, it reminded me that losing Emily, that there's something, a gift in that for me. In other words, it's not just all loss. That I now am equipped to do something I otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. It, that, that beauty from ashes reminds me that there's more to our story then we live and then we die. There's more to our story to that. Do you, I hope you're beginning just to see, we're beginning just to scratch the surface of the absolutely unique approach to death that Jesus and his gospel of grace is offering us. On the one hand, on the one hand death, death is not natural. It's a real enemy. It takes something from us that we were never meant to lose. So grief and sadness and anger are appropriate. They're always in bounds. And yet, and yet, in no way does that strip us from hope or cross the line into despair or a paralyzing fear because death is not the end of our story. Death is not the end of our story. Consider the uniqueness of the gospel of grace. This is what Paul says in our passage this morning. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant of those who have fallen asleep. He calls it sleep instead of death on purpose. The Bible is encouraging us here to contrast the hope of grace 
with the hope of other approaches to life, other philosophies, other perspectives that other religions are offering. Not to feel superior at all, but to recognize the supreme gift that we're being offered by Jesus. And that is that we were made for and bound for a world of infinite love. Of infinite love. There are plenty of religions and views that say after you die, you live on in one form or another, like you become one with the all soul or whatever. And I'm not making fun. I, 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 if those bring people some comfort, I'm more power to them. But it's not personal. That's not a world of love. It's like water being poured into, a drop of water being poured into the ocean or being dropped into the ocean. Like we said, like the circle of life kind of perspective. Does that drop still exist? Yes. Does it maintain its dropness? No. There's no longer a you or a me in that future. And that means it's a, it's a future devoid of love. But look at this. Look what Paul is telling us here in the, in the Bible passage. We may live together with him. This is me, and this is you, and those you love, and I love together and together with God. The Bible teaches that in eternity, I'll be me, you'll be you, we will know one another, be known. And that is the only possibility of loving and being loved. If we lose ourselves in death, we've lost everything, even if our molecules survive and our energy goes on. You cannot have a relationship with energy. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul, again, I told you there were many passages about death. Listen to what he says. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. Look, the reality is this. This is what we all want. We, we've said this a few weeks in a row now. We are all born looking for someone who's looking for us. Nobody who knows you completely can love you completely. And no one knows this better than married couples. Sorry for young married couples, okay? To let the cat out of the bag. Yes, some things, most things in marriage must be said. They must be shared and they must be revealed in a healthy marriage. Most things. Like, because if we don't, we won't be known enough by our spouse. And if they don't share enough with us, we won't know enough about them. But to say everything we're thinking all at once, no. <laughs> Not a good idea. I had a counselor one time. I don't, we were in marriage counseling and, and the counselor said to me, Mike, count to 10 before you say it. And I've learned he was being overly optimistic. I now count to 10,000. And so sometimes Lisa will say to me like, why are you so quiet? I'm counting, right? Look, to be fully known at all moments in human relationships is usually the end of that relationship. Look, most of us think that most of us are great. And I love that. That's wonderful. Maybe you think I'm really great too. But, but you know, you don't know me very well. I can put on quite a show up here for an hour a week. But people who know us best are usually much less impressed with us. Like Lisa could tell you some stories that would get me fired. Like why doesn't she? Because I have stories about her. It's a standoff. We're, it's too late now. We're locked into it, right? But here's the thing. God does know us fully. I want you to think about that. God knows us fully, every thought, every secret. And his response is he loves us fully. Think about it. We can only be fully loved if we're fully known. Grace changes death because it means that the future is a world of love where we are all together and God fully knows us and fully loves us. Rub that grace, rub that hope, hope into grief and watch the fear of death die. Here's another way to rub it in. It's fourth way. We get the life we always wanted. 
death is not really defeated if when we die, we just like strum hearts on clouds. Like, you know, that just sounds awful to me. I don't even like harp music, okay? I, I certainly don't want to look like one of those angels. The hair is nice, but beyond that, no. One of the reasons that we structure our time together here in our gatherings, the way that we do is that hopefully we are trying to create, cultivate a pleasing aesthetic. Like a fam- in a familiar setting with great music and fun videos, this is our attempt to reenact, to embody the reality that the eternal, abundant life of faith in the grace of God is good. It's good. One of the reasons I did not like church when I was little is because I was like, oh my gosh, if heaven is like that, that's hell. Now, for people who love it, that's great. But what about for those of us who don't? The grace of God is good as in related to somewhat like the things that we already know and the things we already love. It's not some ethereal, disembodied life as spirits floating on clouds. And I know that that is the image that we all think about when we think about heaven. And there's something to that for here and now in the time in which we live. But the ultimate end, what the Bible refers to as the end of time, is that's not what it looks like. That's not our ultimate future. Notice what this passage says, and it's a little bit confusing because of the translation, but it says, we will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. But, but then what? Like We assume the passage just means we just keep going up and up and up, like Superman into heaven. But the word meet here is a Greek word. It's a technical term. It's used to describe what the people of an ancient city would do when their conquering king returned from victory. They would go out to meet him, to greet him on his way back in to the city. You see, what happens at the end of time is that the Bible says God comes down to earth. That there's a new heaven and a new earth and they become one. I have no idea what that means, what that looks like. But I know that it's not a disembodied, all just spiritual existence. God comes down to earth to be with us here because the Bible says that not only is Jesus resurrected in his body, but so will we be in a glorified body. And again, I don't, I don't pretend to know what that means. I don't think we're supposed to know. We can't even imagine it, but we get the point. Every time, now look, every time I talk about this, and sometimes I talk about this at Easter, but every time I talk about this promise of the gospel of grace, and I point out in the ancient creeds of the church that it says the Christian faith believes in the resurrection of the body, that I get all kinds of notes and emails and texts like, how didn't I know this? How come no no one ever said this before? It's really hard to believe, and I get it. Like, for some reason, it's easier for us to believe that when we die, we just float up to heaven, and that's it. That's the ultimate end, but that is, that's really hard to believe. I get it that it's hard to believe that we're going to be resurrected bodily. It's hard, but here's the question. Is it harder to believe that than God himself would come to earth and die for us? Is it harder to believe that, that we're going to be resurrected in the body? Is it harder to believe that than the miraculous mystery that we exist at all? That's the miracle and the mystery that science can answer a whole lot of questions except the most important one. How did everything come from nothing? How did, and that's what science says right now. Everything came from nothing. Stephen Hawking's got this great phrase. He said the Big Bang started from a point of infinite density and no size. That means everything came from nothing. That is the miraculous mystery of each and every one, every breath we take, every atom in the universe. Yet we walk around trusting in that and believing in that all the time. 
Couldn't a God who could do that, a God who would do, do that, create a future where, as Tolkien put it, everything sad comes untrue? If we are to face death with a hopeful grief that, cure, that kills the fear of death, we have to see that in the end, we get the life we always wanted, including our real physical bodies. Finally, the last way that we rub hope into grief is to remember that Jesus is the champion that kills death. Jesus is the champion, the king, that goes out and kills death. No one hates death more than God, and there's nothing more that God could have done to defeat it than what he did in Jesus. Donald Barnhouse was a Presbyterian minister and famous for coming up with really cool stories and analogies. And he had the unfortunate um, experience in his life of his, when his wife passed away. And he was driving his kids home from the funeral of their mother and his wife. And he saw a truck driving next to them. And he came up with this, this thought came across him. He said to his children, do you see that truck? Do you see the shadow of that truck? Would you rather be hit by the truck or by the shadow of the truck? And the youngest child said, the shadow. And he said, because Jesus was hit by the truck, your mother has only gone through the shadow. This is what Psalm 23 means. Though I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The death we all experience at the end of this life isn't real death. It's just the shadow of death. Therefore, we can and we should grieve, but with hope and without fear because Jesus killed death. Look, if you're like me, this is all really hard to take in. Some days I believe it. Some days I don't. A lot of days I'm everywhere on this stuff. Frankly, it, it's hard to believe. And this is why the Bible calls living by faith the fight of faith. It's a struggle to believe this. You know who else struggled to believe it? Jesus. He doubted. He actually screamed out to God, at God, as he died. But I want you to just think about this. Just run a thought experiment just for a minute. Set aside how much you do or don't believe, with this, believe in this or not. Just think about this. What if it's true? What if in the end of life here is just the shadow of death? What if in the end we get a life of love, the life we always wanted in the real world? If we believe that, can you see how that would change death? And is believing in that worth fighting for? Because believing in that, placing our faith in the grace of God, changes death from an executioner to just a gardener. And do you see how that lack of the fear of death could change life? C.S. Lewis said, if I really am the product of a materialistic universe, how is it that I do not feel at home there? If I find myself, in myself, a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Do fish complain to the sea for being wet? No, because they were made for the sea. But if they did, wouldn't it suggest that they were not made for it? Why are we continually appalled and shocked by death unless indeed something in us is not temporal. I think deep down, the eternity set in our hearts is telling us this is true. This faith is worth fighting for. And now our role is together to rub grace into grief and to move from grace to even more grace.
So for the last three months now, we've been considering the possibility that grace, trusting in God's undeserved love, acceptance, forgiveness, and affection changes everything, changes life, ourselves, our identity, relationships, religion, suffering, and more. And as we bring this series to a close, maybe the most important thing that we can say is that through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, grace even changes death. From an executioner to a gardener, from an enemy to an usher, from the end to the beginning. And if grace changes even death, that means grace changes everything. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place and this opportunity to be together. We lift up all of those who find themselves in the fight of their lives and maybe in a fight for their lives. And that's many more of us than we're aware of. And we ask for your healing, for your comfort, for your peace in the midst of us. 
in the midst of it. Please remind us that your grace comes in daily doses, that you give us enough each morning for that day, not any less, but not any more. And that fear creeps in when we try to fight tomorrow's battles armed with only today's grace. Thank you for loving us enough to give your life for us, to kill death, freeing us from the fear that would steal the life from life. Thank you for your grace. It changes. You change everything. As we leave, help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, folks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. Have a blessed week.